0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today we are joined by a superstar Australian and dear friend of the show and ours, Antony Lowenstein, who's a wonderful independent freelance investigative journalist. He's a best-selling author and filmmaker. He's the co-founder of Declassified Australia. He's worked in dozens of countries and lived and worked in, in Palestine in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. He's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, Al Jazeera, English, The New York Review of Books, and many others. And he's written a brand new book, now, we're going to talk about this book, but we're also going to talk about an upcoming event, Tuesday, the 5th of September at 6.30pm at RMIT. Find out details, go to freepalestinevic.org. That's freepalestinevic.org. Anthony's going to be joined by Sarah Saleh, and that event is going to be chaired by the wonderful Nur Mansur. So the 5th of September, which is a Tuesday at 6.30pm, put that in your diaries now to get along to see... Sarah, Anthony, and Noura Mansour. So, Anthony, congratulations again on another book. Thank you. I can't wait to read it. I've got my copy here. Good, good. You know, I've still got my Israel question, which I bought, I don't know how many
1: copies of. Well, that came out in 2006. It's hard to imagine that's nearly 20 years, NASA, God help me. But yeah, I mean, the first edition anyway. 2006. We're still looking
0: good, Ant. We're still looking. Good. We're looking
1: very good. A bit more grey. I speak you more than me. I've got grey too, actually.
0: <laughs> but yes, I'm older than you, so I'm allowed to be grey. A little bit older, ladies and gentlemen. You can only hear the audio, but Ant and I can see each other, and you can see my my copy is here. Oh, I can see. Yes, yeah. very just, nice. Yeah. It's yeah. under my shoulder in the bookcase there. But um, I I don't know how many of them I've bought and given out to friends. And this is a huge extension on that seminal piece of work, and I, I think it's important. It'd be great for us to start out on your journey there and i know in this book you talk about growing up in a very you know jewish liberal zionist home Mm. and how your view has evolved over the last 20 years and you write that uh, mirrors the growing global awareness of what israel has always been and where it's headed you talk a little bit more about your personal connections to that issue and and how your understanding shifted
1: yeah i mean obviously I don't want to give people an entire personal history. But, I mean, the short version is I grew up in Melbourne. I grew up in the uh, mid-'70s, and I grew up in, as I said, a liberal Jewish home, which for people who don't know what that means, that generally means Zionist. Um, The the Melbourne, particularly the Melbourne Jewish community then and really still now, although it's changed a little bit, was pretty Zionist. Melbourne had uh, the largest percentage per capita of Holocaust survivors in the world, which I think definitely impacted the perspectives of many jews towards israel and certainly impacted my family my my family my grandparents came in 1939 most of my family were killed in the holocaust in um auschwitz and others and when they came to australia they were not rabid zionists you know israel wasn't the center of our lives it was nothing like that but I was told from a young age, Israel is something we support. God forbid something happens to us again. And for listeners who don't know, although listen to this show probably do know this, as someone Jewish, if I go to Israel tomorrow and I can prove my Jewishness, so to speak, you know, show my mother was Jewish, I can be a citizen within a handful of months. Of course, a Palestinian doesn't have that same right, which is the main reason why I've never taken that opportunity to become an Israeli citizen because I think it's an inherently discriminatory act. Um, so I grew up fairly, I don't know if I grew up personally Zionist, I grew up in a Zionist environment. As years went on, I guess I found the intolerance, the racism within my family and the wider Jewish community towards Palestinians, initially strange, bewildering. I'd never met a Palestinian. I have no recollection of meeting a Palestinian until my twenties. I mean, that sounds ridiculous maybe, but if I did, it was far and few between. It just wasn't something Many Jewish people did, and that wasn't particularly because I myself was racist against Palestinians. It was because in the, I guess, in the circles I moved in, it just wasn't something that we did. The time I suppose I went to Israel, Palestine for the first time in two thousand five, which was for then researching what became my first book, my Israel question. And when I look back now, Nessa, the response to that book before it came out and when it came out was so insane. But in some ways, ridiculous. If you look at the book, I say in that book, which my views have changed a lot since then, I support a two-state solution. I support Israel as a Jewish state. I mean, this is not controversial stuff, guys. And my view on that has both changed radically. I've evolved, you might say. I think that what the issue was, and for listeners who don't know, they can Google this stuff. There's lots of stuff online about it. But the short version was a year before the book came out, there were people in parliament condemning the book. It hadn't even come out. Hadn't even written the book. When the book came out, AJAC, which is Israel Australia's leading, so-called leading, most powerful Israel lobby, put pressure on my publisher, Melbourne University Press, Louise Adler, who was then the head of that publishing house. She now runs the Adelaide Writers' Festival. And herself this year, as listeners will know, invited a lot of Palestinians to Australia. So she's had an interesting evolution as well as a nice Jewish girl from Melbourne. Anyway, you know, there was attempts on my publisher to pulp the book. I mean, just madness. Anyway... I think as time went on, the, th- the threat, I think, that was perceived was the idea of a youngish, I was in my late 20s then, a youngish critical Jew who said not just what Israel was doing was abhorrent. I looked recently at my first piece in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2003 and I used the word apartheid. I'm not suggesting that I was a hero for doing that, but that was fairly uncommon back then in 2003. I think the threat was that I was saying to the wider community that what my so-called community, the Jewish community, was doing was contributing to ongoing occupation. In other words, we as Jews have a culpability for what's going on. It's not just the Israeli government. Obviously, they're the ones doing the policy. But the Jewish community in the West, in Australia, is funding it, supporting it through lobbying, through pressure, through money, through a multitude of ways. And I remember at the time being told by I think it was maybe other Israel lobbyists who would I mean, I remember years ago, I was taken out for lunch or a drink by Mark Dreyfus, who, of course, is now the Attorney General. He then was on, I think he was on the AJAC board. It'd be fair to say, my politics then and now is rather different to Mark. But anyway, I remember him saying to me, and he was not alone, and I'm paraphrasing him, it's not, you know, revealing any dark secrets of him whatsoever. Basically, you know, we don't think that you should be airing the dirty linen in public in other words the jewish community has issues like any community but don't talk about them publicly and my response to that at the time and i'm sure i said this and i think it even more so now what chutzpah like what are you talking about the idea that after back then what was it uh, i guess it was decades and decades of occupation and the jewish community is directly complicit and supporting that you think we should just speak amongst ourselves that boat sailed in 1967, it settled in 1948, in my view. That's not going to happen, mate. Like that, that that door is shut. Anyway, over the years, my views have evolved. I've spent every three or four years since 2005, I visited Palestine. I was reporting from Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza many times for various outlets here and overseas. And in 2016, my partner was got a job with Oxfam, the NGO, and we moved to Sheikh Sharar in East Jerusalem. So we were there for a number of years. And I was freelancing and I guess that's when this idea with this book started in a way. But yeah, I think in some ways before I went there, I'll finish on this point. Maybe I'd thought, I don't know, naively is the word, but I probably thought to myself and often I would say publicly that what's happening in Palestine is not sustainable. My view about that now has changed. Now, when I say sustainable. I'm not talking about, you know, for a million years, a thousand years, you know, no one can look that far ahead. It can't, it's hard to look years ahead. But my view now is in the short to medium term, I think what Israel has created there, partly based on occupation, partly based on the arms industry, which I discussed in the book, I think it's very sustainable. Very, now, long-term is an open question.
0: Let's talk about the book in specifics. So I didn't mention it before, but the latest book is called The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the technology of occupation around the world. Israel's monetized the occupation. It's what they've done
1: brilliantly, so from its perspective, absolutely,
0: yes. Aside from getting U.S. military aid and you know qualitative and quantitative advantage over all of its neighbors, Benjamin Netanyahu has just done a deal to sell weaponry to Germany. Yeah. Well, I talk a
1: lot in the book actually about the Israeli-German relationship, which is a deeply toxic one. I'm a German citizen, by the way. I don't know if you even knew that, but I'm a dual citizen. Um, a german and an australian citizen but yeah it's the biggest deal in um, israel history it's billions of dollars yeah
0: billions of dollars at the moment he hasn't sold anything to the ukrainians because he's trying to keep the russians on side and i mean it's very very nuanced but we talk you talk about how the occupation how israel how could it possibly continue the reality is most of the world's moved really quite right I mean, we have a situation where Modi, Prime Minister Modi of Prime Minister India, Ma, has gone to the US to uh, make a speech to Congress. Didn't get all of the um, standing ovations that Netanyahu got when he came, got invited by Congress at, to uh, embarrass Obama. But he was got the the standing ovations and whatever. But there were some Congress people that boycotted. And the reality is, Israel and India, you know, back under the Non-Aligned Movement, Nehru and President Nasser and stuff. India was a great friend of the Palestinians, Mm. but no longer.
1: No longer. I talk a lot in the book about this, actually. Let me just give you a brief summary of the book and then talk about India. Look, the idea of the book really is to say that the tools and technologies that Israel has developed in the occupation, I'm talking principally since 1967, though the book very much talks about an occupation of sorts since 1948, but a lot of this accelerated after 67. The massive amounts of tools and technologies that they're using. So I'm talking in the modern age of things like spyware, drones, facial recognition technology, biometric data, all these different tools that Israel uses to maintain its occupation is now a massive export business. So Israel is now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. It sells to as I calculated in the book, well over 130 countries. So that's the majority of nations on the planet. And democracies and dictatorships, and I detail in the book, and a lot of the book came out a few months ago here in in the US and the UK, and a lot of people have messaged me saying that they were just not aware of the extent of Israel's complicity with some of the most egregious human rights abuses. I'm not even talking about in Palestine. I'm talking about around the world. Latin and South America in the 70s and 80s, African dictatorships, um, often profoundly anti-Semitic i mean the irony of israel a jewish state supporting deeply anti-semitic regimes including argentina who literally were housing nazi war criminals wasn't an impediment wasn't an impediment at all i mean the arms industry by definition is amoral and obviously as i say in the book the u.s is the world's biggest arms dealer it sells 40 percent of the world's weapons and it's not like the american arms industry is you know bathed in sunshine and light i mean by definition right it's a corrupt and horrible industry. But what Israel's done very cleverly from its perspective is it's Monetized an occupation and exported it, and the reason I focus a lot in the book with India and Israel, as you rightly say, Nasser, is that India is now the biggest country in the world, the biggest population in the world, the biggest self described democracy in the world, massively warmly welcomed by Biden in the US. There was there was some dissidents, I agree, Ilan Omar and a few others, and I, and bless them for doing that. But the vast bulk of the American elites is in bed with India because they see dollar signs, and and let's be honest, not China. And let's I and mean, let's not forget. Modi was here this year and Albanese was slobbering over him. I mean, it was just deeply embarrassing for the same reason, because they're not China. And what India is doing, and they're not doing this because of Israel, but let me just preface it by saying that, but in, Modi is trying to create a Hindu fundamentalist state. It's not even shy about it discriminating openly against the roughly 200 million muslims who live there there are regular pogroms against muslims in india directed and often led by people in his bjp hindu fundamentalist party and what's interesting in the last years and i document this in the book is how the indian elites often talk about israel and deeply admire what they're doing in palestine to the point where they say what Israel is doing in Palestine, namely bringing in Jewish settlers, settling the land, inverted commas, settling the land, is what we want to do in Kashmir. We want to bring in huge numbers of Hindus to northern India. And, and that's exactly what India is doing right now. Now, as I said, India is not doing any of this because of Israel. But this ideological alignment and this sort of alliance of ethno-nationalists is important because I compare it in the book to Israel and apartheid South Africa back in the day. They were incredibly close to those two nations. They inspired each other Israel hugely admired what South Africa was doing against blacks and, of course, vice versa, in Israel against Palestinians. And they would often say to each other, we so admire, you know, you are fighting barbarism for us. That was a language that was used. And that was in the 70s and 80s. You fast forward to the 21st century, and India and Israel are remarkably similar. Now, Israel and India are much more powerful than South Africa and Israel were in the 70s and 80s. But I think there's so much what do you call it, whitewashing or ignorance or willful blindness about what's happening in India, a nation which is arguably one of the top 10 powerful nations on the planet, its population is soaring whereas the Chinese population is declining because of the, frankly, stupid one-child policy back in the day. And China's paying a really high price for that now. Its population is declining very badly. That India is a country on the rise. And the idea that I see Israel, India... Hungary, much of the global far right, often is embraced and welcomed by Israel. I mean, I read and unfold this, obviously, disturbingly closely. You have regularly Israeli, not talking about some fringe player here, but Israeli government ministers embracing and welcoming the European far right from Romania to Hungary, from Austria to Spain. Sometimes these governments are in, sometimes these parties are in power, sometimes they're not. And to be clear, these are parties with far-right backgrounds, far-right presence, often Holocaust denial histories, Nazi associate. This is a Jewish state. Now, we kind of hear that. People kind of go, that sounds weird. It's weird, but it's also not. Because what I say in the book, a lot of of the far-right, and I think Modi fits into this in his BJP party, they deeply admire what Israel is doing. It doesn't mean the far right, who are often Nazis, love Jews. Often they don't like Jews at all. And I quote in the book Richard Spencer, who some listeners might remember as this alt-right leader in the U.S., who a few years ago said, I'm a white Zionist. That's what he called himself. And what he was saying, I think it's instructive to hear that and to understand it, is he didn't say this, but obviously Richard Spencer doesn't like Jews very much, you know, newsflash, but he does love and admire this concept of a fundamentalist Jewish national estate because that's what he wants to create, of course, for Christians and whites in the US and the far right wants to create in Europe. So that inspiration, as someone who's Jewish, although secular, the idea that Israel is an inspiration for individuals and countries which are fundamentally opposed to human values and Jewish values is really disturbing and needs to be called out. So it's a pretty, it's a very relaxing, funny book. It's full of jokes <laughs> and it's it's a real laugh. But it's, yeah, it's a lot of people have reacted really positively, so I've been pleased about that.
0: Brilliant. And the book, again, is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, There'll be a link to that in the podcast as well. You'll find a link in the details for Human Rights, Arms and Surveillance, the forum on Tuesday, the 5th of September at 6.30 p.m., Tuesday, the 5th of September, 6.30 p.m., RMIT. Find out details, go to freepalestinevic.org. That's freepalestinevic.org. And can't remember who it was that broke it, but NSO and Pegasus. Mm. Listeners will have heard that. I mean, it was reported everywhere around the world. Yep. In particular, I mean, to get on the US blacklist, there must have been a particularly egregious entity.
1: Yeah, yes, yes, and no. I mean, not not no, because <laughs> they're a misunderstood company. They're obviously a horrible company. Just for listeners who don't know, Pegasus is a it's a phone hacking tool essentially. So, Pegasus is can be installed on your mobile phone, whether you have an iPhone or Android, without you knowing. So, obviously, without your consent, and everything on that phone can be sucked up and controlled and seen by a a government, a military, a police force, and literally everything. So if you think you have an encrypted app, Signal, WhatsApp, it makes literally no difference if your phone is captured um, and you're all they need. Years ago, they used to need that you you, know, you would get some random text message. You know, it says something like, oh, this is the post office. You got a package and you kind of, oh, that's weird. And you click on a link and you forget about it. Well, then it, it acts active on your phone. Now it doesn't even need that. All Pegasus and other tools like that need is your phone number. That is it the end and one of the things that's so disturbing about this is that it's been sold to dozens of countries in the last 15 years the country that's most obsessed with it weirdly enough that uses it more than any other nation on the planet is mexico mexico is obsessed with pegasus i mean a lot of other countries are too obsessed right-wing governments left-wing governments all levels of government military police and mexico of course is not buying it because they have an ethno-nationalist alliance with Israel. They buy it because they want effective spyware, and Israel are the masters in the world of doing it. And huge numbers of other countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, many Rwanda, India. And one of the things I talk a lot in the book about, I do talk about Pegasus, but what I also say is that for many of the media in the last years, they kind of miss the bigger picture. Yes, Pegasus is a dangerous tool and a dangerous weapon, but Pegasus is not some, it's often framed as this crazy rogue Israeli company doing terrible things. No, 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 no. It's an Israeli company, but it's an arm of the state. I have details in the book about this. It's that all these companies, all these surveillance companies mostly have veterans of the IDF who have spent years surveilling Palestinians in Palestine. They take that experience into the so-called private sector. So yes, NSO Group is a private company. It has a board and it makes money or not. All that's true, but it's an arm of the state. And I detail in the book how Netanyahu and the Mossad in the last 10 years often would use pegasus as a diplomatic tool a diplomatic carrot they would go to say saudi uae rwanda and they'd say you want to be better friends with us love to be good friends with you this is what we'll do we will sell you this unbelievably powerful tool you want to go after your distance we don't really care what you do with it but you have this tool and in response or as a you know we'd like you to vote a certain way in the un or we'd like you to do a certain policy and i show in the book at almost as a timeline. Netanyahu goes to country X. Within six, 12 months, spyware is now in use and certain policies or votes are changing. This is how it works. Pegasus is but the tip of the iceberg. There are huge numbers of other companies that are doing this as well. And this finally, yes, the Biden administration sanctioned NSO group. But I think, again, this is a, it's missing the major point. The US issue with Israeli spyware isn't because it's spyware. It's because they see a competition to their own market. This is what this is about. America wants to be a world leader in spyware, developing it, and Israel is frankly beating them. Israel is regarded as the first or second top spyware makers in the world. And America doesn't like that. And as I say in the book a lot, there's often the misunderstanding that the US and Israel are obviously very close friends. I mean, that goes without saying because of all the protection and and money that America gives them. But also they don't trust each other very much at all. At all. It's this weird dynamic where allegedly the NSA, which is America's leading intelligence gathering, much more powerful than any other nation in the world, has around three hundred and fifty Hebrew speakers who every day their job is to spy on Israel. That's their job. This is an ally. And you can be rest assured that works the other way around too. I'm sure there are Israelis obviously spying on America. I mentioned all that in the context of this so-called ban on NSO group because yes, it's, it's impacted that company. They are struggling now. there's no doubt about that. Other, other companies have come up in its place. but more importantly, they don't like the competition. Wow. They don't want to have other competitors. So
0: that's not a question of human rights?
1: No, I mean America frames it like that. America's oh you know, we're really concerned that this spywares going up to dissidents. Well, yeah, that's true. You think America is caring about a random dissident in Nigeria or Uganda? Please. No, what they're pissed off about is the fact that that country is not buying spyware from the US. That's what they're upset about.
0: And, And most famously was used by Ahmad bin Salman
1: in the Turkish embassy. Yeah, look, there's a lot of um, detail in the book about this. That I mean, some listeners will remember that Khashoggi was a Saudi. He was writing for the Washington Post. He went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He had to get some papers to want to marry a woman and never came out. And he was killed, executed under the orders of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. The details of Khashoggi's movements and with his friends and colleagues was because Saudi had been sold Pegasus Israel and after that murder there was a brief time where there was international outcry and Israel you know was pressure on to sort of stop providing these services and I have details in the book which sort of said there was a short break then Israel just resumed business as usual because I mean Saudi Arabia's got a lot of a lot of money and they're a great client and the context for that now is just recently Israel released its 2022 arms sales figures, right? It was the highest ever. I mean, it's doubled in the last decades, 12 and a half billion US, surging. And it's going to be high this year almost certainly because huge numbers of European nations now are buying weapons because they're scared of Russia, rightly or wrongly. And 24% NASA of those 12 and a half billion were to Arab autocracies. Yeah. UAE, Bahrain, the Abraham Accords. Yeah. So called Abraham Accords were an arms deal, right? And obviously the US is now trying to bring in Saudi where that happens of course is an open question
0: it's, it's happening as a, it's just happening covertly
1: well it, it's been happening I'm mean, I'm I say this in the book Israel's been friendly with Saudi for years unofficially to be sure but Saudi obviously has certain demands so we read you know they want various protections they want lots of weapons and that's what UAE and um, Bahrain wanted and Morocco wanted and they got it all yeah got all that that's why I mean the irony of Israel saying the only democracy in the Middle East but we're also assisting autocracies to remain autocratic. It's a nice it's a nice touch.
0: Nice touch. Ladies and gentlemen, We're speaking to Anthony Lowenstein. We should remind people that he was, you know, our Jerusalem Akut's Peace Prize winner a couple of years ago. Anthony Lowenstein will be joining Sarah Salah and Noora Mansour on Tuesday, the 5th of September at 6.30pm at RMIT. Details will be in the podcast, as will a link to um, Ant's website and to his book, so make sure you go there. And we've got a few minutes to go. Australia-Israel, changing relationship. Elbows changed some words. Penny's changed some words. What's your read?
1: Uh, My read is I welcome that change.
0: Yes, thank you
1: very much, Labor. Obviously, better than the alternative, which was this weird sense that we were adopting a pretty extreme view that the occupation wasn't an occupation somehow, which is rather not surprising considering the liberal party i think labor views palestine as a 50th important issue they don't really regard as that important they regard the jewish not so much the jewish community per se obviously numbers wise is around a hundred thousand versus roughly half a million muslims so on on a numbers game not that every jew agrees with israel and every muslim doesn't but you know in general (laughs) in general i'd say most muslims would support palestine and probably a majority of jews would support israel it's probably pretty uncontroversial to say that still they see the Jewish community, the Jewish lobby group pressure, Israel lobby group pressure as far more influential and important. They don't want to get too ahead of the US, which, of course, is there. I mean, Albanese and Wong are captured by the US security state. I mean, AUKUS is the classic example of that. The idea of getting too far ahead of the US and the US is not just, I mean, is willfully paralysed on Palestine. I mean, Biden would have had an opportunity this year when Israel, Israel's government's never been so extreme to do something beyond expressing displeasure to Tom Friedman in the New York Times. I mean, that's the extent of it. Well done, Joe, you know ridiculous. I think there is definitely a shift going on within Labour. I don't think it's happening at the Albanese, Wong, Plibersek level. I mean they know it's happening. There's a growing, not just a growing vocal left, but a a much more active and influential left, as there is, frankly, in the US Democrats too, actually, on these issues. They're not still, you know, they're not becoming president, not becoming prime minister here. And that's, I think, reflected in issues around Palestine, around AUKUS, around an attempt to try to change refugee policy. I wouldn't say I'm massively optimistic that that's going to change much in the short, short term, but I think Labor needs to be massively pressured. I think, obviously, the Palestinian community, I mean, and others need to remind Labour that the idea of changing a few words does not look particularly good when history is written, put it that way. I think there needs to be a political price paid for being so gutless. And at the moment, I think they calculate there is not.
0: I think you're right. And if we could galvanise the the Islamic community, they'd want to be around a green banner, but that colour's already gone and teal's probably pretty close. But Whatever the colour might be of Western Sydney, the Islamic Party or whatever yeah. might, might forefront Palestine and say, look, in fact, there's going to be an electoral cost for this uh, marginal improvement in language. And we should say that in the context of, you mm. know, the Greens released their new Palestine-Israel policy and I'd argue it's the best in the world. It's very
1: strong. I mean, I wasn't involved. I'm not a member of the party. I wasn't involved in drafting the policy, just to be clear. But I spoke to a number of people who were involved in that process during the process. And I was asked for my views. Over as Again, I didn't have anything to do. The policy was drafted by the Greens. But um, no, I agree. It's incredibly strong. It's if people don't know about it, they should check it out. I wrote a bit about it a few months ago. And I think it now frankly puts the pressure on Labour to not just follow, but to at least acknowledge, I mean, reality. I mean, a lot of the policy that the Greens have, because their previous policy was frankly pretty not weak, but weakish, we should say. And acknowledges reality. There's an occupation. It's permanent. It's apartheid. I mean, what they're saying is frankly not controversial. It's controversial in the mainstream, right? Uh, but no, I agree. I think controversial to Murdoch and Sky News. Most everybody else knows it. Yeah. No, I think I think there is, and I, I mean, what I hope is that the Greens leverage that into making it much more something that they campaign on. It's not going to be their top issue. I don't. I understand that, but I hope that they do. And I've I've said that a number of times publicly, and I, I speak to certain people in the Greens and sort of say, in some parts of Australia, this does play well politically. I mean, in some parts of the community, I know it doesn't. I understand that, but it does. And that needs to be pushed. At the moment, I'm not seeing enough of that. I mean, the problem is that the, yeah, anyway, lots of other issues are happening, but it needs to be pushed a lot more by the Greens and supporters of that party, in my view.
0: Thanks so very much, mate. We need to wrap it up. But ladies and gentlemen, Tuesday, the 5th of September at 6.30pm at RMIT, you can see Anthony Lowenstein, Sarah Salah, and Noura Mansour, Tuesday, the 5th of September. Find out details, go to Free Palestine Vic. Dot org. That's freepalestinevic.org. Go to the podcast so you can get details on Anthony's new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. Thanks again, mate.
1: Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks, Nasser.
0: Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.